Good morning again. Once again, if you're a guest with us, we're glad to have you. And if you are new with us, you join us kind of at the threshold, the outset of a new series that we're entering into for the next 10 weeks, really the rest of the summer, called Cultivate. And we're going to be looking in this series particularly at the fruit of the Spirit. If you remember several weeks ago, uh, the outset of my time with you, I remember casting a little vision for us and asking you to pray for God to do what only God can do. And one of those things that I asked you to pray for was that God would cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and in our individual lives and in our corporate lives so that we would be marked by what God, only God can do in our lives. Um, You know, as I have conversations with people um, in pastoral ministry over the course of the last 12 years, inevitably they all want something uh, to be different about who they are, where they are in life. They all want something to be changed, right? Uh, As one mid-90s rapper said, I wish I was a little bit taller I wish I was a baller, right? In other words, I wish my appearance was a little bit different. I wish my abilities were a little bit different. Um, So all of us look in the mirror and we say, man, I wish my nose were a little bit smaller. I wish I did have a few more inches of height. Or I wish I could maybe drop 10 pounds. Or we might look at ourselves as far as what our capacities and abilities are. And we say, I wish I could, you know, actually break 80 in my golf game, or I wish I could, uh, you know, whatever abilities my, my job might require of me, I wish I could excel on those a little bit more, I wish I was a little more crafty around the home, or I wish I related to my kids in the way that that mom or that dad relates to their kids. We all might have particular uh, appearance issues that we wish were different in our lives, or we might have particular ability issues that we wish were different in our lives, but I think at the end of the day, if we were all real honest with ourselves, when we look in the mirror, Not only are there appearance issues that we wish we could change, and not only are there ability issues that we wish we could change, but at the end of the day, if we were to be real honest with ourselves and those who know us best know that there were character issues in our lives that we wish we could change as well. We wish we were more joyful in the midst of daily stress. Those of you parents of young children, you wish you were more joyful in the midst of daily stress and all the chaos that tends to come at times erupt in the home. Or we wish we were more self-controlled in the face of temptation. And as our hearts feel drawn aside to do things that we know are outside of God's revealed will for us, we wish we could stand in the face of those things firmly planted with self-control and not yield to temptation. Or when we look at our neighbors who live around us, we wish perhaps we have more love for them, a deep love for them. That desires their best and is willing to act courageously in the face of what might at times be very uncomfortable situations to be able to share on the basis of the relational bridge that we build with them, the gospel. We wish we loved them more. We wish at times there was more peace in our lives, right? We sense a sense of wholeness about us. If we were all real honest, when we looked in the mirror, we wish there were a lot of things that were different about us, whether our appearance or our abilities, but also our character, what's in here. Now, we can, if you want to change your appearance, there are ways that you can do that, right? There's exercise plans that you can get on, isn't there? And you can drop 10 pounds. There's diets that you can utilize in order to drop 10 pounds. Or if you want to change your abilities, you go to a seminar, you go to a conference, and you get a workbook, and you work through that workbook, and you develop a new skill set. But how do you change character? How do you change character? See, the reality is that most of us think that the way you change character is by getting training and you get a new skill set and you just apply that new skill set in all these various aspects of life. But the reality is that your character is usually revealed most whenever you're acting out of instinct, isn't it? 
Not whenever you've had time to step back and really process everything and go, okay, how do I apply this skill in this situation? But rather whenever you're just acting intuitively or you're acting out of instinct, your character comes out. You go, whoops, I wish that were different. I wish that were different. See, over the course of the next 10 weeks, what we want to do is trying to get underneath how it is that God really does renovate us, how he really does bring about true change in our lives so that we're not just living a morally restrained life, a morally restrained life, but we're actually living a supernaturally changed life. There's a difference between those two things. So you can take a rubber ball or a tennis ball, and if you squeeze that ball hard enough, what happens? It creates indentations in it, doesn't it? But when you let it go, what happens? It goes back to its shape, doesn't it? Or you can take an aluminum can, and you can squeeze that aluminum can. And when you squeeze that aluminum can, you let it go. It stays in the shape that you've put it into, right? See, there's a difference between a morally restrained life where you put more external boundaries up to restrain issues of character in your life versus a life that truly has been molded and shaped from the inside out. And over the next 10 weeks, we want to see what that kind of life looks like and how it is that God develops that in us. And in order to kind of start that this morning, we want to look at the root of this fruit. Because when the Bible speaks of character change in our lives, particularly in Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about it being the fruit of God's activity and work in us. So God's working in us, and so all of a sudden things start changing in our lives. But what's the root of that? Who's doing that? Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice who the, what the Apostle Paul attributes this character change in our lives to. He says, it's the fruit of the, what? Spirit. The Spirit is actively involved in the life of a Christian, renovating and cultivating this fruit and producing this fruit in their lives. So in order for us to begin to see how God cultivates this fruit in our lives, I think it's first of all important this morning that we kind of dig underneath and see what the root of that fruit is, that it's the Spirit. Well, who is the Spirit? Because there's a lot of folks in the church who have all kinds of ideas about who the Spirit is. And then what does he do? What does he do? What's his role in our lives? What, what kind of work does he do? And then how should you and I respond? So that's what we want to do this morning, unpack those three things. Who is the Spirit? What does he do? And how should we respond to him? You with me? Who is he? What does he do? How do we respond? First of all, who is he? Who is the Spirit? The identity of the Spirit. Now, some think the Holy Spirit is kind of like uh, an, an impersonal force that the Jedis tap into in Star Wars in order to wield their lightsabers and kind of lift this subwoofer and throw it across the room without ever touching it, right? Some people look at the Spirit that way as this impersonal, empowering force that helps them do all these crazy, amazing things. There are other people who look at the Spirit and they think the Spirit is kind of like a ghost that you have to catch with a proton pack and a ghost trap that you slide underneath and after you phase him enough, you can kind of open up the trap and he sucks him in. Little Ghostbusters reference for those of you born before 1980, okay? So, 
they think of the spirit as a ghost that you have to catch, right? Or they think of the spirit, they think of the spirit as this really powerful presence that puts you down on stage in a moment like a big game animal with a tranquilizer. And you just kind of fall out. Right? They got all kinds of ideas about who the Spirit is. The problem is the Bible never speaks of the Spirit as this impersonal force. And it never necessarily speaks of the Spirit as something you have to catch. And it never speaks of the Spirit as something that's going to put you down. Right? When the Bible speaks about the Spirit, what the Bible reveals to us about who the Holy Spirit is, is this. The Bible communicates to us, I believe, clearly that the Holy Spirit is, listen, He is the eternal love the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal love that the Father has always had for His Son and the eternal love the Son has always had for His Father. And that, that love is so rich and that love is so dynamic that it stands out as the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I told you a few weeks ago, you shouldn't buy anything from me unless I can show it to you in the Bible. And I don't expect you to buy this from me either unless I can show it to you in the Bible. So turn with me, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, to John chapter, seven, uh, John chapter 14. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have it. But in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15... John, in, this, in, verses, in verse, chapters 13 to 17, John is kind of recording Jesus' really last in-depth private conversations with his disciples. And so Jesus is teaching them. He washes their feet and he begins to teach them. And in John chapter 14, he says this in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is pointing forward to a day and saying, listen, there's a day that's coming in which the Spirit of truth that the world does not know will be in you. He will dwell in you. He will take up residence in you. In other words, he's going to move in. There's a day that's coming where the spirit of truth is going to move in, Jesus says. And Jesus goes on in John 15, and he goes on in John 16, and he goes on in John 17 to continue to talk repeatedly about the spirit and the spirit's ministry and what the, who the spirit is and what he would do. And he comes to the end of, of that discourse and further down in John 17, in verses 24 to 26, and he says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that, have, that, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 26. That the love with which you have loved me may be, where? In them, and I in them. Jesus says, the ones that you gave to me, I'm going to continue to love them. And why am I going to continue to love them? So that the love that you have always had for me might be present in them and I would be in them. How is Jesus in them? Jesus is in them through the love the Father has always had for the Son being present in them. 
And who did John say back up in or Jesus say back up in John 14 would be in them, would dwell in them the spirit of truth. And he's talked about the spirit all through John 14, all through John 15, all through John 16. And he gets to John 17 and he says, I want this love that we have known for all of eternity to be planted into their hearts. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the love the Father has always had for the Son. And the Son has always had for the Father. Now this is kind of hard to get our minds around, right? It is. It's challenging. But I want you to think for a moment about a particular, maybe a family that you might know. Maybe your family or close friends that you might be associated with. And this family or this group of friends, they have a deep, lasting connection where there is a deep affection that they have for one another and a deep commitment they have to one another and an incredible priority they have when ordering their lives and structuring their days. They love those people well. And whenever you look at that family unit or when you look at that group of close friends, you might say there is a spirit of love between them. A spirit of love between them. And what Jesus says in John 14, 15, 16, and 17 is that indeed the Holy Spirit is the spirit of love between the Father and the Son that is so incredibly rich and dynamic that it stands out as the third person of the triune God. This is the Holy Spirit. You go, okay, what in the world does that mean? Let me give you at least three things this means for you and I. Okay? First, First, it means that upon our conversion, upon our conversion, the very love God has for himself moves in. The very love God has for himself moves in. Peter, when he stands to preach at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, upon your conversion, whenever you come to turn away from sin and you turn to Jesus, you receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit moves in. He takes up residence. He comes to dwell. He comes to live within us. And who is the Holy Spirit? The love that God has for himself, the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, that moves in here. You know what that means? It means this. That means for those of us who are Christians in this room this morning, that upon your conversion, that you awoke one day to experience a love for God beating in your chest that you never knew before. You may have tried to be a good person before. You may have tried to live a moral life before. Uh, you kept squeezing the rubber ball, and it kept popping back into shape. But what happened whenever you expressed faith in Jesus Christ for the, and you received forgiveness, love that God has for himself moved in so that now, there is a love for God that's beating in your chest that you never knew before, never experienced before, and had never tasted before. Have you experienced that? Have you tasted of that? See, I think there are many people who fill the, the these aren't pews, the pews of churches and portable chairs in churches all across our nation who believe that they are Christians, but there is no vital love for God beating in their chest. Because the Holy Spirit has not taken residence. Do you love him? Second thing this means for us is this. This means that what God demands, God provides. Now this is a glorious truth. 
What God demands, God provides. On multiple occasions in the gospel accounts, when Jesus looks at his disciples and, he, and, and the people who are surrounding him as he teaches, and they say, sum up the law for us. What's the most important thing? And what does Jesus say? On one occasion in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus says, here's what life should look like. You should love God with everything that you have. Love him with everything that you have. This is what God demands, that you love him. So what does God provide? Love for him. Love for him. See, so many of us, when we read this, a text like Mark chapter 12 or one of the other accounts in, in, in Luke's gospel or in Matthew's gospel, we see God saying to us, Jesus saying to us, you should love the Lord your God with everything that you are, the totality of your being. I go, okay, I gotta really try hard to do that. I gotta muster up the strength. I gotta tap into all my resources and draw those out in order to love God. You've missed it. You've missed it. What God demands, he provides. God knew that you and I could never love him the way that we need to love him. So what does he do? When we, look at, when we turn from sin and turn to Jesus, he plants a love for himself in our chest. Because what he demands, he provides. See, God knew that we could never love him the way that we need to. We might love God for what he gives, Many of us might find ourselves in that position this morning. We might love God for what he gives. As long as he's blessing me, as long as he's giving me good things, as long as there are promotions in my career, as long as there are children in my home, as long as everyone's healthy and wealthy, I love Jesus. But do you love him for who he is? If all those things were stripped away, and you found yourself like Job in sackcloth and ashes, would you be able to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return? Blessed be the name the Lord? Do you love him for who he is, not just what he gives? So you can love him for what he gives without having that deep love of the Spirit beating in your chest, but you cannot love him for who he is without the Spirit. The third thing it means for you and I is this. It means when the Spirit moves in, that our motives are changed. Our motives are changed. You see, a morally restrained life, kind of squeezing that rubber ball, here's what happens. Here's the motive that you're operating out of most often is fear. If I don't do this, if I don't do this, if I don't do this, then God's going to get me. He's going to withhold things from me. He's going to crush me. So I operate out of fear. Either that someone else is going to find out or that he's going to find out. He knows everything anyway, but he's going to see. And all these bad consequences are going to begin to ensue and unfold in my life. And so what I, you're operating out of fear as far as your obedience goes. A morally restrained life operates out of fear. And here's what happens when you're operating out of fear is that whenever you succeed by your own resources, here's what happens. You get a huge head, right? You get overinflated with pride. It's like somebody takes the little beach ball and they go, <laughs> and pride just swells. But whenever you fail, someone sucks all the air out of you and you find yourself destitute and broken. See, when you're operating out of motivated by fear, either you're on cloud nine one day and seven levels under the earth the next day. And sometimes that's from morning to evening. 
You ever experienced that roller coaster ride before? Right, where you're completely up because everything's going so great and you're doing so well and tracking so, so, so obediently and then all of a sudden something hits, boom, and you fall and you feel so devastated. Why? It could be because you're operating out of fear. But when the spirit moves in, the motive shifts from fear to love. You're no longer operating out of fear of what will God do to me but now you're operating out of love, out of what has God done for me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that awakens a love for us as the Spirit moves in. Oh, it changes our motives. And so now whenever we see success, we don't get overinflated with pride, but rather there's a humility there because we know it's not us who's doing the work, but the Spirit who's working through us to produce any good. And when we fail... When we fail, it doesn't send us rocketing down. We have a, we have a, a, a more of a, a steady pace because we have a confidence that God loves me and has forgiven me. And so I get back up, I dust myself off, and I keep pressing forward by the Spirit's power. The Spirit is the love the Father has for the Son. It is the love the Son has for the Father. And it makes all the difference in the world to understand that. What does the Spirit do? This is activity in our lives. We should consider several things that John speaks of in John 16 in particular. First of all, his practical workings. What does he do in our lives? First of all, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit convicts. If you look in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, the text reads as, as follows. And when he comes, Jesus speaking of the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict. Now, what does it mean to convict? Convict doesn't always mean that he's going to beat you up to make you feel bad, right? Convict can also mean, in fact, literally the Greek word can also mean that he's going to persuade you of the truth. He's going to persuade you of the truth of what sin is and what righteousness is and that judgment is coming. He's going to persuade you of that truth. He's going to convince you of that truth. And the Spirit has that ministry in our lives. Is the Spirit persuading you and convicting you over areas of sin in your life and showing you this is indeed something that's aside from God's revealed will of what he desires for you. Is the Spirit showing you what righteousness is? as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. The Spirit does that as part of his ministry, his activity, is that he persuades us of what is true and what is a lie, what is accurate and what is false. In addition, not only does he convict, but he also instructs. He also instructs. In John chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, speaking of the Spirit's ministry, he will glorify me, Listen, this is how he's going to glorify Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in other words, what is mine, what I've received from the Father, he says in the context there, what I've received from the Father, what is mine, the Spirit's going to take that, he's going to declare it to you, he's going to instruct you. Now imagine the disciples are sitting around there going, we've heard everything that you said to us, Jesus. Like, we've walked and talked with you for three years. We've shared meals with you. We've gone on journeys with you. We've sat around the campfire at night and told stories with you. We've listened to all of your public teachings, and we've also gotten this private discipleship course with you. 
So in what sense is the Spirit going to take what is Jesus's and declare it to his disciples? Hadn't they already heard all that? Here is the sense in which the Spirit does this. He, does it, he did it for the first disciples, and he does it for every disciple after. Is that the Spirit takes what is true, and he makes it real. He takes what is true, and he makes it real. There's a lot of things in this world that are true, but they're not all real for you and I. A lot of things that are true, but not a lot of them are real for us. For instance, if you, you, it's true that there are good, gracious, and loving families all across this globe. And yet, if you are born in sub-Saharan Africa to, and, and, and abandoned at birth, and you're raised in an orphanage in which no one loves you, no one holds you, no one shows you any affection, no one embraces you, no one instructs you, no one teaches you, they just kind of give you food to keep you alive. Does it mean that it's not true that there are good, loving, gracious, and hospitable families all across the globe? No, that's still true. But for that child in that crib, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real until someone says, I want him. Or I want her. And they adopt that child into their family. And they begin to show it the kind of love and the kind of grace and the kind of affection and the, kind, and the provision that they had never tasted before. All the while, that's true, but it was never real for them, and that's the Spirit's ministry in our lives. He instructs us. He takes the things that are true, and he makes them real in our lives and our experience. I say, that's, that's, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, that is part of your experience, is it not? Is it, there's lots of things that you have heard before, and in fact, whenever people come to faith initially, Whenever God saves them, they may have grown up in the teaching of the church and in the preaching of the church. They may have been there every Sunday, right? Like my kids, down in the, in the children's ministry. And then they, when they graduate from the children's ministry, they come into the, to, the, to, to big church, okay? They come into this room with us, and they hear the teaching of the word. They hear the preaching of the word. They read Bible stories at home. But there's a moment when they're converted, and all of a sudden, all this knowledge that is all true that they've received, it becomes real for them in their experience. And the Spirit does not only do that whenever you're first converted, but He continues to do that at every step of your journey. He takes what is true and He makes it real. He instructs you. Are you experiencing that in your own life? Is the Spirit taking these truths that you have heard maybe all of your life and making them real in your experience? The third thing the Spirit does practically is He outworks His, does His work in our lives is this. He attracts. The Holy Spirit attracts. That same text in John 16, 14 and 15, it says this. He will glorify me, speaking of the Spirit. He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says He takes what is true and He makes it real. But He also takes what is true about the person and work of Jesus and He makes it beautiful. He makes it beautiful. He says, he will glorify me. He will hold me up. You ever driven by a home during broad daylight and perhaps one of the neighborhoods in our community, you drive by that home and you look at that home and you go, that's a nice house. Yeah, I like what they did with the door there, with the windows there, with that little facing there, with the way they use stone or where they use brick. That's a nice house. 
And then you drive by it at night, and maybe they've got some landscape lighting out there, and they've got floodlights that are coming up from the base of the foundation. And those floodlights are positioned just so that they highlight the architectural features of the home. And you drive by that home, and you go, that's a beautiful house, all lit up, where you can see, you can see the intricacy. See, that's the Spirit's ministry. He takes that which is true about Jesus, and he shines the light on it so that it becomes beautiful in our eyes. See, apart from the Spirit's ministry, all these things that are true about Jesus are just like brick and mortar until the Spirit takes them, illumines them, and all of a sudden, our eyes, we can't take them off of Jesus. We're captivated by him. Is the Spirit doing that in your life? You wake up in the morning, and as you open the Bible and you begin to read, you begin to see the, the, the drama of redemption unfold on the pages of Scripture is the Spirit taking that and shining light on it. And you go, that is beautiful and I can't take my eyes off of it. And so what happens? You begin to chew on it all day long. As the Spirit is attracting and drawing you to the person and work of Christ. He convicts, he persuades you of what is true. And then he takes that truth and he makes it real in your experience. And he takes that truth and makes it beautiful so that your eyes are fixated upon it. That's his practical work. But notice also in John 16, John tells us he has the power to do this. He has the power to do this. The power to do this work. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Have you ever thought for a moment, man, I would be such an amazing Christian if I could have just walked with Jesus. If I could have just seen the miracles. If I could have seen him turn those, those loaves and fish into enough food to feed the multitudes. If I could have seen him say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave with his grave clothes being shed. If I could have just seen him say, peace be still to the wind and the waves, and all of a sudden the sea goes from being engulfing to being placid. If I could have just seen and heard his teaching and walked alongside of him, I would be so much further in my advancement as a Christian than I am now. You ever thought that before? I have. <laughs> I have. But consider what Jesus says here. This is, if, if, most of us read right past this. It's incredibly radical what he says. He says to his disciples who had walked with him, who had sat with him under the stars, who had seen his miracles. He says, it's better for you that I go away and then I live with you forever. Why? Because if I don't go away, the spirit doesn't come and it's better for you if the spirit comes. Now, if Jesus says that, if Jesus says that, I think Jesus knows what he's talking about. Okay, And if Jesus says that, the Holy Spirit must have an incredible power that you and I have never fully realized. Never fully realized. If he says, if I don't go away, Spirit can't come, and it's better for the Spirit to come than for me to stay here and hang out with you forever. You see, what, what, what John is saying to us is this, and what Jesus is saying to us is this, is that there is an incredible power that gets planted in your life, this love for God that's beating in your chest, that convicts and instructs and attracts, that has incredible power to change your life. 
to change your character so that when you begin to act out of instinct, those instincts have changed. And as your character flows out and oozes out of your pores, it's coming out changed and different than what it was before. It's got incredible power. It's like an acorn. Anybody got any oak trees in their yard? Anybody? Bueller? Right? One or two? Okay. Got an oak tree in your yard? Okay, when those oak trees begin to set seed, they drop acorns, don't they? They drop acorns. Now, within that tiny little acorn, within that tiny little seed, is a massive oak tree just waiting to burst forth. And when that acorn falls in fertile soil and it begins to take set roots, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It doesn't happen immediately. You don't wake up the next morning and go, wow, there's a 40-foot oak right there. I just planted that acorn yesterday. That's amazing. If it does, I want to know your secret, okay? It doesn't happen overnight, but over time, as that tree grows, those roots become so expansive that if it's planted too close to a home, those roots will display so much soil under that home that it'll have the power to cripple that foundation. All from that tiny little acorn. And Jesus says it's better. The spirit, that seed that gets planted within you, that love for God is better for him to come than for me to stay with you because he's got incredible power to shape and renovate your life. Here's what this means real practically for you and I. It means this. It means that your heart, my heart, the hearts of your friends, the hearts of your family members, there's not a single heart that's too hard to crack. There's not a single heart that's too broken to be healed. And there's not a single heart that's too callous to be changed. Not a single one. See, some of us think about our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers, and we think, God could never. Wait, back up. For a moment, Jesus says, it's better for the Spirit to come. There's not a single heart that's too hard for the Spirit to crack. Some of your hearts have been broken by experiences in life, by challenges that you faced. And I want to tell you this morning, there's not a single heart in this room or in our community that is so broken that the Holy Spirit, this love for God beating in your chest, cannot heal it. And some of you look in the mirror and you go, that'll never change about me. You may grieve and mourn that fact and you think that that can never change. And there's not a single heart that's too calloused that the Holy Spirit cannot soften it and change it from the inside. Final question, how do we respond? Be the shortest of the three. That's good news for you. How do we respond? Two words. Depend and submit. In Galatians 5.16, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says to the church at Galatia, he says, Miss walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means to live every day in dependence upon and submission to the Holy Spirit. Live every day in dependence upon and submission to this love for God that is beating in your chest, that is persuading you of the truth, that is making that truth real in your experience, that is making the truth of Jesus beautiful before your eyes, and that has powerful workings in your life. 
Depend on him. In other words, don't wake up tomorrow morning and go, I've got to generate fruit. You wake up tomorrow morning and you say, Holy Spirit, would you cultivate? Father, would your spirit cultivate this fruit of love and joy and peace and patience in me? Would you cultivate that? Would you produce that? I can't produce it on my own. Would you produce it in me? Would you bring about the change that I desire, that I can't generate on my own? You depend upon him. And then as he begins, listen, as he begins to prompt you to act more loving, here's what you got to do in that moment. you got to believe that as he prompts, that he is producing. That as he convicts and persuades you of the truth, that he is cultivating. And so you yield to him. You don't resist him. You don't harden yourself against him. But whenever in the midst of a conversation, God convicts, the Holy Spirit convicts and persuades you that you are harsh in the way that you spoke to that person. Or you feel that harshness rising. You ever feel that? Feel it kind of rising up in you in the midst of that conversation? And the Holy Spirit taps you on the heart. That you yield. Because as he prompts, you believe he's producing. As he convicts, you believe he's cultivating. And you respond gently instead of harshly. So you live in dependence upon him and submission to him, allowing him to control. Allowing allowing him to control. See, the way the Holy Spirit controls is that you and I aren't like, we're, we're like a car, but not the cars that you drove here this morning. Okay? Cars you drove here this morning have an internal combustion engine that can propel themselves forward. That's not you. You're like a train car. You and I are like a train car. And we're connected to an engine that has the power to propel us forward. You can't propel yourself forward. The Spirit can. And so every morning you wake up and you, you confess you're dependent upon Him to do what only He can do. And as He begins to do it, you submit to that work in your life, and he pulls you down the track. So for the next 10 weeks, we're going to spend time unpacking what those stops are down the track, what those fruit are that he's cultivating in our life. And as the band comes and leads us in a time of reflection and response this morning, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to just take a moment and pray. Take a moment and pray. Because for some of you in the room this morning, right, you've lived a morally restrained life all your life. You've just been squeezing the rubber ball and there's not been any change. It keeps popping back to the same shape that it was before. And it may be that all you've ever done is place more moral external restraints on your life and you've never been born again. The Holy Spirit has never moved in. And when he moves in, he begins to unpack his bags. He's got a lot of bags to unpack. And for some of us, that hasn't begun to take place, even though we've been in the church for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And if that's you this morning, I'll be in the back during this song. If you'd like to visit about how you can move from being morally restrained to supernaturally changed, I would love to have that conversation with you. Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you. We thank you for the work of Christ and that because he came and lived in our place, and died in our place, and ascended to your right hand, 
the Spirit is alive and active in our lives today. Father, for those that you are persuading now, that your Spirit is persuading now that they have never met you, they do not know you, I pray that you would draw them that the attracting work of the Holy Spirit would be brought to bear upon their lives and he would cause them to see Jesus as beautiful. Not as a hard taskmaster, but a loving, gracious God. And for those of us who do know you, I pray that in this moment that we would reconfess our dependence upon you to generate fruit that only you can cultivate. We don't have the power ourselves to do it. May your spirit do a work that only they can do as we sing and respond to what you have said to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name.